0: So two people brought up um, questions at the break. And uh, the first one I want to just directly respond to. And then the second will be a way into um, the next piece here. And uh, so the first question was essentially, uh, to paraphrase it, can this turning toward the, the beneficial, the pleasant, the wholesome, can turning toward experiences like gratitude or pleasure in everyday life in the body or feeling loved by other people and then deliberately internalizing them, because that's what I'm really zeroed in on, installation, registration, learning, change. Can that be like Soma in The Brave New World, the book, a kind of, in a sense, I'm going to add to what I suspect the person was bringing up, a kind of spaced out, diluted, just happy, you know, like um, Pangloss, I think, in Candide. It's the best of all possible worlds, you know. Let me worry, you know, Alfred E. Newman, all the rest of that. And it's a very legitimate concern. It's a very legitimate concern. One I've thought a lot about how to do this, especially coming as someone like myself who, you know, comes from a very Buddhist perspective that recognizes the ways in which craving of various kinds, including subtle craving can lead to suffering and harm, right? And a couple things here. The first is that uh, while I'm sure any method can be misused, right? any method can be misused. And I think there's a place for simply being with our experience and just being with what is, without doing anything with it, including deliberately trying to internalize it. That's a very fundamental part of life and a fundamental part of practice. So we're speaking here only about one aspect of practice, the aspect of cultivation, the growth of the good, growth of strengths, growth of skills, growth of resources, capabilities, resilience. The doing of that, number one, makes us more able to deal with the bad. Because it's through having these resources inside that a lot of research has shown, tend to incline us toward being more altruistic, patient, kinder, more pro-social, more cooperative, uh, more forgiving, let's say, toward other people. Because we're our own cup, runneth over. And also, when people feel like they're running on empty. My first book, as I said, was about mothers, who very often, I, you know, I think many transit a kind of depleted mother syndrome, where they feel like they're running on fumes. It's harder and harder to uh, Uh, deliver the goods day in and day out a thousand times a day to a vulnerable precious being who, dirty little secret of parenting, is sometimes quite annoying, right? As they say in the airplanes, put your own oxygen mask on first. So it's really important to grow resources inside, right? And then second, which is now a segue to the second question, I think it's really interesting that generally speaking, when people internalize experiences of feeling fundamentally safe and protected and all right right now and strong and efficacious, that they're a hammer instead of a nail. As people do that, they actually gradually become less fearful and angry and less combative uh, toward others. Also, as people repeatedly internalize experiences of gratitude or gladness or accomplishment or Uh, everyday uh, pleasures of the body, Uh, drinking water when you're thirsty, putting on a jacket when you're cold, uh, snuggling into bed when you're tired, uh, you know, chocolate, etc. As people really internalize those experiences, including the fullness of this present moment, they gradually become less greedy, less grasping, less driven to attain goals and, you know, prove themselves. And also as people repeatedly internalize Feelings of being included or seen or appreciated or liked or loved, cared about. Or people repeatedly internalize experiences of feeling loving, compassionate, kind, uh, seeing the good in others, seeing the good in themselves. And also as people internalize experiences of self-worth, as confidence, guess what also happens? They tend to be less envious, jealous, hateful, aggressive, discriminating, prejudiced, and warlike toward other people. And that's the segue really into the second question, which the person raised. How do we be in the world and engage efforts uh, which are so often based on stress and drivenness and fear and anger and striving to impress other people and become important? It takes one to know one. Now I know about this way of being often. Um, you know, How do we aspire? How do we engage life fully? How do we be ambitious without tipping into the dark side? So I want to talk about that. Okay, so far? Um, so one way to do this is to think in terms of the evolution of the brain, brainstem, subcortex, cortex, loosely associated with the reptilian, mammalian, and primate-human stages of evolution. All right? Or, to put it a little differently, as a kind of metaphor that's very simplistic... Inside each one of us, I certainly recognize it inside myself, there is a little lizard, a little mouse, and a little monkey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And again, being very kind of metaphorical, but it's an easy way to just sort of register this and explain it to other people, uh, as the brain evolved in these three stages, you know, lizard, mouse, and monkey, so did our capacities to meet the three fundamental needs of any animal, including a complicated animal like us, loosely associated with these stages of evolution, Uh, the brain has become more effective at meeting our fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. So we have these three overarching needs that are managed by three overarching systems that help us be safe by avoiding harms, help us be satisfied by approaching rewards, and help us be connected by attaching to others. These are three very familiar ideas in psychology, three very familiar motivational systems, avoiding pain, approaching pleasure, and attaching to others, okay? So we have these three needs, three systems, and basically, again, to simplify, the brain has two settings. It has two ways of going about meeting these needs. So we have three needs and two modes or settings uh, or ways of, of meeting these needs. In the first case, when people experience that their needs are met, the brain defaults to its resting state, its sustainable equilibrium, in which the body repairs and refuels itself and recovers from bursts of stress, and the mind is colored in terms of safety, satisfaction, and connection with a general sense, in three umbrella words, of peace, contentment, and love. That's what others and I have called the responsive mode of the brain, or to simplify, the green zone. Okay? That's kind of good news. That's the equilibrium condition of the body-mind system. On the other hand, we've also evolved a second mode, a second way of meeting our safety needs, uh, in which when we feel that one or more of these core needs is not met, we don't feel safe in our core, or we don't feel satisfied, or we don't feel loved or connected to others, the brain fires up in terms of a fight-or-flight response or really freezes in terms of overactivation of the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. And we move into what others and I have called the reactive setting of the brain, the reactive mode, or the red zone, in which bodily resources are burned, long-term projects are put on hold, and there's a sense of destabilization in the body. It's a departure from equilibrium. And in three-umbrella terms, the mind is colored by a sense of fear, frustration, and heartache terms of safety, satisfaction, and connection. Now, if you have a familiarity with the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, you might recognize that the Green Zone is a kind of summary neuropsychological operationalization of the Third Noble Truth. There's not much sense of craving there. Why? Because the causes of craving are not so present. What are the causes of craving? The causes of craving, from a biological, neuropsychological standpoint, are predominantly a sense of deficit or disturbance. When you're in the green zone, when you experience that your basic needs are being met, there's a sense of fullness and ease rather than deficit or disturbance. The reactive mode, the red zone, is a very summary neuropsychological operationalization of the second noble truth, because then there's a sense of deficit and disturbance which drives craving. I try to work backwards, what in the world is going on in the brain of a Buddha or a saint or someone far along in practice or ourselves in a really good day and then figure out, okay, how can we stabilize that state by repeatedly experiencing it, you know, activating that state or various factors of it and then installing them in the brain. In other words, through repeatedly having responsive mode, green zone experiences, and installing them in your brain, you become increasingly able to engage life on the basis of an already internalized, increasingly unconditional, increasingly independent of external contingencies, internalized felt sense of peace, of strength, of feeling protected, of contentment, of feeling already fulfilled, already rewarded, already accomplished, already grateful and glad, and an increasingly internalized felt sense of love. Already feeling loved enough, already feeling included, already feeling of value instead of ashamed, um, and feeling loved and uh, compassionate toward other people. See the big picture there? And for me, that creates a fantastic path with heart, a beautiful path. Repeatedly internalizing, responsive mode experiences when they're authentically available to us is a beautiful way to fill ourselves up on the inside out and gradually uh, undo the underlying causes of craving. To put it in a summary way, cultivation undoes craving. We can still engage life, you know, aspire, uh, protect ourselves and those we care about, um, you know, work things out with other people, but we don't do it on the basis of fear, frustration, and heartache, not at least in our core you know, red thoughts and feelings and desires may arise in a generally green brain. And my personal hope is that uh, somehow we're going to get a critical mass of brains, my rough number is a billion, kind (laughs) of stuck in the green zone, engaging life, speaking truth to power, sticking up for themselves, asserting themselves, writing books, building companies, you know, building houses, planting trees and whatnot, But a billion brains on green, I think, would change the course of human history. Okay. So to really, really summarize it, and I'll hear what you have to say, and then we'll do a little practice with this. Ready? Pet the lizard, feed the mouse, and hug the monkey. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Comments or questions? About this kind of framework, like any framework, it's imperfect, it's a simplification, but three needs, two settings, one practice. You know, taking the good. All right, yeah. You were the person who uh, raised the question, so I'm going to give her first dibs. Can you give an example of people who are really engaged with the world from this, like the green zone? Like, I was wondering if you'd put Gandhi in that category or other people that would come to mind where you think they're engaging from the green, like with the green brain? Sure. Um, and And again, I would say think of yourself in situations, let's say, where there are threats. Threat- so I'm talking about safety system. I'm going to do each one. And then I'm going to ask you, what could be for you these days a very high value experience to start looking for having and then especially internalizing? okay? Because that's what you really need to stay in the green zone. Right. So think about situations where maybe you felt threatened. It was a scary situation. But, and you were, you were anxious, but it, it didn't um, cloud your mind. You could hang in there with it and there was a sense of being resourced enough to deal with this threatening situation, right? That would be you were green in the face of a challenge. Or a different situation, maybe um, there's a loss. Someone you love passed away or you know, a, a pet, what have you. Uh, or um, there was you know, some kind of frustration, but there was a holding of it in a bigger perspective. We could stay green about loss or frustration or disappointment. And same thing, um, in relationships, you know, uh, we can be in situations where other people, I'm dealing with a situation like that right now in my kind of personal and business life, they overlap in this case, where, you know, you're just dealing with someone who, uh, sort of has mistreated you, you know, and you go through, was was I really mistreated here? And you go, yeah, I really was mistreated here. Uh, they really did step on my toe and kind of grin evilly. No, not quite that, (laughs) but the equivalent, um, but do I can I be with that person without a mind that's hijacked by hate, you know, while being assertive and clear and, and not get so attached to what's happening in the mind of this other person? And I think there are many everyday examples about that. I mean, I so I slightly, yes, there are examples like Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, many other people who in the face of provocation just stay very centered and very clear. But we have many examples of that in everyday life. I think of it a little like, sailing you know i've done some sailing and i've sailed uh, a ship a a boat without a keel one time and i capsized it immediately of course because i was an idiot and uh there i was upside down in tamales bay like what you know realizing i should have buckled my life jacket before i (laughs) fell in the ocean and anyway (laughs) lessons learned so but the deeper the keel of the boat the more you can be brave and go out in the deep dark blue Because you can afford to sail out there where the wind is blowing hard, right? Because you've got that keel. And if a gust hits you hard, um, you recover more rapidly. And you can see the obvious metaphor for our relationship. So we're willing to, as Brene Brown puts it, dare greatly, you know, and increasingly risk our vulnerability because we've deepened our equanimity. In effect, um, what I'm trying to do a lot in, in a Buddhist frame, which may not be relevant for many people, but for those who it is, is really try to operationalize what the Buddha was really talking about, especially as best we can gather in the earliest uh, written discourses of his teaching or that of his immediate followers. And how do we think about it in modern neuropsychological terms in ways that lead to skillfulness? Does right. that make sense? And okay. So here's a, here's a personal story. Now... Um, if you think about it, well, I'll tell you my quick story. You may have heard me tell this story because I do tell the story. But so as I grew up, uh, my parents in a very decent loving home, kind of lower middle class suburban setting in Southern California, uh, my parents were, uh, caring and loving and they took good care of us. There were no terrible traumas as I grew up, right? I wasn't repeatedly bullied. I wasn't beaten. I didn't grow up in a scary, dangerous, you know, impoverished neighborhood, um, so I didn't have huge issues in terms of safety. Those weren't my big issues. I right? know. Okay. Also growing up, there was enough food to eat. We weren't hungry. Uh, and I was successful in school so I could accomplish goals. I was the oldest of three kids. I learned how to get off my parents' radar so I could pursue my evil schemes on my own and <laughs> successfully attain them. You know, so I didn't have big issues with the satisfaction system, with approaching rewards. Right. But... Growing up, my parents were very poor at empathy for different reasons. In other words, they were loving, but it was hard for them to really register who they were loving or understand what was going on over there. And second, I was very young going through school, late, very late birthday, and I skipped a grade. So I was you know, typically about two years younger than many of my peers. And I had many experiences, also linked to being shy and kind of anxious, of being rejected, dismissed, unwanted, devalued cast out, right? Not terrible compared to what happened to many, many people, right? But actions have consequences, or causes have effects. I ended up with what felt like a hole in my heart. I didn't get enough. It was partly the presence of the bad, but mostly it was the absence of the good, which can be equally consequential, even more consequential, right? So I didn't, my issues were in the attaching system, connection, the connection need, right? So I tried to satisfy my needs, take care of my problem by being stronger, more determined in terms of safety system, right, or protected, that's nice, but it didn't fill the hole in my heart. I needed, it was like I had scurvy. I needed vitamin C and I was taking iron pills. Iron's nice, but it didn't meet my need. Also, I would look for uh, experiences of fun, pleasure, party-hardy, um, you know, and be successful and accomplish goals in terms of the satisfaction system, approaching rewards. I could get a lot of rewards, but, you know, I w- or work on gratitude, that was nice, again. I had a lot of fun, but it didn't fill the hole in my heart. It didn't address my need that was in the relationship system. It was only when I started really looking for legitimate moments when I was included and wanted and liked and valued, you know. People would include me in going out to dinner. A girl would smile at me in the elevator. Two girls would smile at me. That was a good day, you know, know, stuff like that. Um, And then I would let myself feel it. This was in college. I started doing this. And then I really took it in, and I listened to the longings in my heart. I was hungry. I was in pain. Pain is a motivator. That's when things really started to change for me. Episode by episode, mo betta. You know, individual episodes didn't make much difference. Uh, But the gradual accumulation of the internalization of the soul food that I really needed added up big time for me as the years went by. See the basic idea? Mm -hmm. So the question for you is, what's your vitamin C? And a map that may not fit for you, but it often is a map. Is it a lizard, mouse, or monkey problem? You know? In a sense, for me, it was a monkey problem. It was a relational type issue, right? What's your vitamin C these days? What, if it were more present in your mind, would really make a big difference for you? See the basic idea? And so you can, you know, you can think about it, wow. You know, am I dealing with threats? Am I anxious? Am I irritated a lot? Do I feel kinda helpless? That's probably a safety system issue. So resources like feeling protected, or feeling all right right now, or feeling strong, or feeling like you have agency—you're a hammer and not a nail—or that others you have allies, you know, especially internalized allies, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous: the mind is a dangerous neighborhood; never go in alone. Right? <laughs> We're gonna have these internalized allies rather than internalized oppressors, uh, or at least to deal with those internalized oppressors. Right? Maybe that's where your vitamin C is. On the other hand, maybe you're grappling with frustration or disappointment or you feel thwarted right? or you haven't been able to attain a major goal or you're trying to sustain effort toward a goal and you're not motivated enough. Or maybe your life feels kind of blah, and, you know, not very satisfying. That would be more like issues in the satisfaction system, the reward system how to approach rewards better. So well would vary a person's vitamin C would be things like repeated internalization of experiences of gratitude, thankfulness, or experiences of gladness or happiness, or experiences of goal attainment, you know, accomplishment, success, or experiences of the fullness of this present moment of consciousness, or experiences of um, just wholesome pleasures, you know, the delights of life altogether. See, that's where the vitamin C's would live. And then if you were like me, you know, issues around in the attaching system, uh, multiple experiences of feeling included or seen or appreciated or liked or loved or feeling compassionate or kind or loving yourself because love is love, whether it's flowing in or flowing out, that would tend to fill the hole in the heart. That's the vitamin C. this basic idea? So what do you think about it? Okay, good. So what if it were more present in my mind these days would really help me maybe deal with an external challenge or deal with a long-standing internal issue? And then how can I, you're asking this for yourself, how can I go out and have more of those sorts of experiences? Or if I see, if I'm uh, thinking about my child, how can I help my child? What would really help my child if it were more present in his or her mind? more confidence, more feelings of friendship, more sense of worth, more sense of being able to make stuff happen. You know, what would really make a difference? And then, how can I look for ways to help my child have those experiences, and then really, really take them in? Questions or comments about this chunk, this part right here? Great. Yes, the thing about you know, practicing losing for a long time, Mm -hmm. We try to be compassionate and understanding, and so I see people who, myself included, um, don't have enough boundaries after all the Buddhist practice. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, for me, early on, I mean, I was numb from the neck down in my early 20s, and also... Anger was uh, the one. It was it was definitely the prohibited emotion. You know, parents had a monopoly on the expression of anger in my family growing up, right? And I remember, you know, uh, when I did this little workshop, and I began to start having experiences of being powerful, of being strong. And because we would create these artificial settings and you would kind of play act it. But I began to notice that's what it was like. And I would really try to register. That's what assertiveness feels like. And also register the difference between, you know, crazy assertiveness and rage with clean, strong, serious, determined, gravity-saturated assertiveness, unilateral assertiveness. And um, that right there is an experience to really register. You know? Right? Or... Gosh, I remember the time when I was Stern with our daughter. And to me, on the 0 to 10 Stern scale, you know, it was like a 1. But to her, it was like an 8 because she's a little kid, right? And I typically, and under- tend to maybe still do, kind of underestimate my own personal intensity capacities. And I remember the look of horror in Laurel's face, like a uh, shock. Bam. No more. No moss. I ain't going to go there again. You know, just like that's, that's an opportunity. What's our learning curve? from what we need to register, whatever it might be. Okay, yeah, in the back. Oh, for sure. That's really true. Um, And in a sense, I'm really kind of asking a very, I guess I've just sort of, come to appreciate the value of what feels like kind of old-school, obvious stuff, been under our nose. You know, I think of the George Orwell quote. uh, To see what is in in front of one's nose. No, to see what is under one's nose takes a constant struggle, right? And um, the question is, what would be good to learn these days, right? For ourselves or our children, what would be good to learn? What would be good to grow? What's the good to grow? You know, I think of uh, the... uh, mind is a little bit like a garden. You know, we can practice with it in three fundamentally different ways. We can simply witness the garden, open awareness, choiceless awareness, bear witnessing, just what's there. I think that's the most fundamental and profound mode of engaging the mind in practice. Um, Second, we can pull weeds in the garden. We can reduce the negative or prevent it arising in the first place. That's the second great way to engage the mind. And the third is to grow flowers to cultivate the wholesome, to plant seeds and protect them, fertilize them, and so forth, until they bear fruit. And all three are important. The one I'm focusing on here is just one of the three. But if we are zeroed in on what are those resources that would make a big difference for ourselves these days, we can make an enormous difference in ourselves and other people. Maybe one more person, they will do a little practice and finish up of the example of the assertiveness that you were, that example, and and setting boundaries or saying no in general, would that be a safety system? Right. In, In my little model, which again is based on lots of other models, I've sort of synthesized and integrated them, and you'll see similarities to what I'm talking about. So it's not some kind of wild and crazy notion. You know, three basic needs, two ways of going about meeting them you know, to simplify. Some of uh, major areas cross over systems. Like, for example, being assertive. Often you have to be assertive to be safe, but it's also an interpersonal issue because someone's being invasive and not respectful, right? Also, in terms of the, this way of thinking, I, I like this theoretical framework I use because it's quite flexible, because we can draw upon other systems for the service of one system right? So to feel safer, we might, um, you know, get a bolt lock that, you know, that's direct safety on our front door. We could also potentially uh, deliberately, um, you know, seek a job that would give us more money so we could live in a safer neighborhood. So we're approaching that reward. And we could also potentially get a nice friendly dog to live with us, right? Uh, To attach to us, to help us be safer, for example. Depression, for example, cuts across all three systems, Mm -hmm. because uh, one, um, you know, when people are traumatized, one in safety violation, one of the primary symptoms is depressed mood. Also, after people have a loss, you know, depression tends to come. And in terms of interpersonal trouble, depression, blue mood tends to arise. So, you know, certain issues cross this model, but um, I think that often we can be guided by our internal sense of what does our heart long for. So if you're looking for what's your vitamin C these days, you know, one giveaway question is, what would have made all the difference in the world when? Fill in the blank. What would have made all the difference in the world when I was growing up in terms of what I experienced? Not so much what circumstances would have been different, but what I felt from them. Or what do I really, really long for? You know, those are two kind of giveaways. I think. All right. So you see, let's do a quick review. Then we'll do a little practice. I'll say, I'll quote the Buddha, and then we'll end. All right. Okay. Yeah. This evening has gone by very rapidly for me. I don't know about you. Uh, short. Feels short, but yeah, yeah right. lots of this material is available freely uh, on my website and. Including on other talks and stuff. And you can also get the book, Hardwiring Happiness. This is kind of a quick summary of that. But thank you. Um, so, quick recap it's good to grow the good, duh, right? Of any kind resilience, uh, feeling entitled to be assertive, uh, growing resources inside that push against the internalized oppression we've acquired based on being on the target of sexism or racism or uh, any other form of prejudice or discrimination. Or we want to grow perhaps various uh, uh, factors uh, that the Buddha has talked about, like uh, compassion or loving kindness or wisdom or moral virtue. Right? We want to grow the good. How do you grow the good? How do you get it in the brain? It's a two-stage process, activation, installation. And if you don't do installation, no learning. Momentarily pleasant, no lasting value. Humbling takeaway. All right? How do we install? We enrich the experience. There are five very well-known factors. Duration, intensity, multimodality, felt in the body, novelty and personal relevance. And we also sensitize and prime memory-making systems by feeling and intending that the experience really sink in. And if we want optional step. We can be aware of both positive and negative material at once, making the positive more prominent. And since neurons that fire together wire together, the positive will associate with the negative, gradually soothing it, contextualizing it, easing it, and potentially replacing it. Flowers crowd out weeds. So we've talked about doing that. And then if you want to do it uh, uh, in ways that have very high impact, look for those particular Resource experiences, or those particular strengths to grow inside yourself that address your needs these days, whether it's dealing with some external challenge or some long standing issue inside your own mind. You, with the metaphor, you know, pet the lizard, feed the mouse, hug the monkey, so that you have a brain that's increasingly stabilized in the green zone, even when the oatmeal starts to fly. Okay? That's our recap. So, a little practice. Want to try something? and we'll wrap her up. So, I do a little thing routinely. Uh, I do it often when I'm meditating. I'll do it when I wake up first thing in the morning, sometimes just before bed. Um, I'll do it if I start feeling kind of unbalanced. I activate, I self-activate a sense of peace, contentment, and love, so that craving starts to fall away in each one of those systems. So, Uh, I don't need to resist what's unpleasant in terms of peace. As contentment grows, I don't need to grasp after or chase what's pleasant. And as love grows, I increasingly don't need to cling to what's heartfelt. So we're going to go through that right now, about a minute or two each. And you might do what I do increasingly and just play around with this on your own and see what it's like increasingly you feel like you're coming home to the green zone, your resting place. So here we go. If you could, notice you're all right right now. I'll start with peace, then contentment, then love. Relaxing as you exhale. recognizing that you're in a protected setting among good people. You're also a strong person. You have strengths that can enable you to deal with challenges so that you can afford to let unnecessary anxiety fall away. Letting unnecessary bracing or guarding or tension or vigilance fall away. Letting any unfounded sense of threat fall away. And coming home and resting more and more deeply in a growing sense of peace. a level of peace, a space of peace that can contain anxiety or uncertainty with peace at your core. Letting a growing sense of peace move to the back of the mind and focusing now on encouraging gently and authentically a growing feeling of contentment, a sense of well-being with no wish for this moment to be any other than the way it is. You can help grow this sense of contentment by bringing to mind things that you feel grateful for or glad about. Encouraging feelings of gratitude or gladness to fill your mind. (coughs) Thinking of things that make you feel happy or contented. As contentment grows, there's a falling away of any frustration or disappointment or drivenness. No need for any of that. and then letting the sense of contentment move to the back of the mind, and finding a growing sense of love, calling to mind beings who care about you, even if it's an imperfect relationship. following up experiences of feeling included or liked or loved. Opening to receive these experiences of feeling liked or loved. Being warm and caring toward yourself to let yourself actually feel these things. Also being aware of your own warm heartedness, your compassion and kindness and caring and love for others. Loved and loving And as your mind and heart and body are increasingly filled with love, there's a falling away of any kind of struggle with other people. Envy falls away. Hurt falls away. Any kind of chasing of others or trying to be important or impressive. All that falls away. No need for it. Greening the heart, in effect, with love. And then as we take just a few more moments to finish up, a more global or integrated sense of peace, contentment, and love all Your home base, a sense of coming home. Disturbance or deficit, falling away, craving, falling away. Present, here, at home. There's a saying in Tibet and elsewhere, that if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. And that's our opportunity, minute by minute, breath by breath, to you know, see the good that is available to us and to uh, be a friend to ourselves, in part out of service to others, to grow the good over here so we have more to offer to them. And to look for that good and really letting it land and coming into an intimacy with it for many reasons. Simply to enjoy life more, to show up more for the good that's here instead of whoop, missing it as it goes on by. Also to grow various resources, psychological resources, inner strengths inside, to deal with life, to be more effective, to be more successful, to be more skillful in relationships, to do that. And also if this interests you, to gradually internalize so much good inside that craving falls away. There's less and less of a basis for it. There's no basis for it. And you're more and more able to, as it's said, walk increasingly evenly over uneven ground through equanimity. Not underestimating the power of little experiences gradually internalized and accumulated over time. Quoting the Buddha here, he said, Think not lightly of good, saying, It will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. May you and I fill ourselves with good. May we help others fill themselves with good for our own sake and in widening ripples, known and unknown, seen and unseen, eventually hopefully helping the whole wide world. So, Thanks for your attention and time tonight and go the family program of Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Thank you for listening.